you have your Bibles this morning, please take them. Turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 4. I'm entering into my 16th year of preaching. I started preaching when I was 16 years old, and during that time, there is something that I have never preached on and avoided, I think like a lot of pastors do, and that is the book of Revelation, because I think that a lot of times we come to this book and we kind of wish that Jude ended up being the end of the Bible because we get confused by some of the things that are in it. But this morning, I want us to take some time to look at the book of Revelation. And so we're going to start in Revelation chapter 4 here in just a few minutes. Now, I think when we come to this book of Revelation, I think that Christians generally fall into two categories about how we deal with it. The first category is those Christians who just avoid it, that we basically just pretend that Revelation isn't there. Because when we look at some of the things that are in Revelation, we start to wonder, what in the world is going on? I mean, we've got things like seven bowls. There are seven bowls and there are seven seals. We've got a red dragon, and then there's a woman who's about to give birth, but the dragon is going to eat the child. And we've got a beast. There's number 666. We've got a black horse, a white horse, a pale horse, a red horse. There's trumpets, a pit, a city called Babylon. There's a river, there's a tree. There's a new Jerusalem that's shaped like a cube, 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. And so we look at things like that, and what is going on? And so we think it's just a lot easier. Just don't deal with it. I mean, Jude ends in this great benediction and prayer. So let's, let's just stop right there at Jude. And so we just kind of forget that Revelation is in the Bible. So that's the, that's the first way that Christians normally deal with the book of Revelation. The second way is that Revelation is all we want to talk about. We see Revelation, we see all the symbols, and we get excited. Oh, the seven bowls, it's got, it's got to mean this. And we've got these seven seals. Well, I figured out, here's this seal and that seal, and this seal that means this thing. That seal means that person. There's this event. And so we get all excited, and we start seeing Revelation as this roadmap. And if we can just figure out all the signs and all the symbols that are in there, we'll know exactly when Jesus is coming back. And so we get basically two different ways that Christians generally deal with this book. And my way has usually just been to, to avoid it because I didn't know what to do with it. But both of these are wrong ways to handle this book. This isn't a book for us to avoid. Revelation falls into the category of exactly what 2 Timothy 3.16 says, that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, uh, for preaching, for correction, for training in righteousness, for reproof, that each of us may be adequate, that we will each be equipped for every good work that God desires for us to do. So it's right for us to deal with Revelation. But I think it's equally wrong for us to deal with it so much that we start looking at every single little thing in Revelation as some particular symbol so that 666 means uh, that I'm my credit card or it's my social security number or it's whatever. And we start looking at every single little symbol and trying to figure out how does that apply right now to today so that I can figure out when Jesus is coming back. So that's a, that's a wrong way to handle Revelation as well. Instead, instead what we need to do is we need to look at Revelation the way it was intended. See, Revelation was never intended to be something that was avoided. It was never intended to be a roadmap for us to figure out how the time is going to end. Revelation was written to be a source of comfort to Christians. 
See, Revelation was written around the time of 95 AD by the Apostle John. It was written during a time when persecution was breaking out uh, against the church. And so Re- Revelation was intended, it was written by John to be a comfort to these Christians who are undergoing this persecution, who are facing death, who are facing uh, possible uh, imprisonment. And so in, in all this imagery that's being used, John writes about this vision, these things that he sees. It's not intended to confuse us. It's not intended to give us this specific map that leads to the time that Jesus is coming back. Instead, it's an imagery that's supposed to show us that God sits on his throne. Satan is active, but God sits on his throne. The Antichrist is at work. There are many Antichrists now. There is a coming, a future Antichrist. But in the midst of that, God reigns on his throne. Babylon is seeking to put you to death. Well, do not fear because God reigns on his throne over everything. This is the message that has been given to those Christians. And so it's intended to give them encouragement. And I want to continue that it's intended to encourage us today too to stand firm, to set our eyes toward the God who reigns on his throne, the God who is reigned over everything, the God who will one day bring all things to an end and all suffering, all persecution will come to an end and all of God's redeemed will stand in his presence forever and ever, crying out, praise be to the one who is slain. It's supposed to give us that kind of comfort. And while you and I aren't going through that kind of persecution right now that that those first century Christians were going through, I still think that this book is important for me and you today. I think, and I, I think I'm right in this, that, that we need this book right now. We need to see the God who John saw in this vision. We need to see the God who sits on his throne and reigns over all things. We need to see the God who holds all of history in his hand. And what happens when we do this, when we see the God of history holding everything in his hands, and we start seeing that our lives are held in his hands and he reigns over everything, then our lives are impacted. Our lives are different when we see the God who reigns over all things. And so this morning, I want us to see that. I want us to see the vision that John gets as he gets a glimpse into the throne room of God and he sees God reigning over all things. So take your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation chapter 4 as we see the Lord God on his throne. Revelation chapter 4, starting at verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and sardis in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Now the first thing I want you to notice as we look at this passage is what John says. John says that, that he is having a vision. Look what it says in verse 2. Look at where it says. He says that he is in the Spirit. So in other words, this is a Holy Spirit-inspired, Holy Spirit-given that uh, vision that John has of this throne room seen in heaven. And so the, the things that John described here go along with him being in a vision. What he is describing here are things that really go beyond the limits of language. Have you ever just tried to describe something that is, that is so beautiful 
words just cannot really capture it. Or think about how much you, you love someone. I want you to think about how much you love your spouse or how much you love your kids. Is there any way that you can really put into words the depth of love you have for that person? You know, when I think about how much I love Jen, how much I love my kids, you know, I, I can try to explain that, but eventually it just comes to a limit to how much my words can fully get that across. Well, John is having this vision of some of the greatest things possible that goes beyond our imagination as he sees God seated on the throne. And so he's using language here, just at the limits of language, trying to describe the beauty and the majesty that he sees. I mean, he describes God as this Sardis and, and as uh, these, these beautiful jewels. I don't think he's saying that God looks like jewels. I think what he's doing here is he's saying this, the majesty of God is so beyond my words. This, this is the best I can do to show the greatness and the grandeur of who God is. So what we, what we see next here. I think it's one of those things that come in Revelation that, that kind of makes us scratch our head and wonder what, what exactly is going on. L- listen to what John writes in, in, uh, in the next verses here, starting at verse 4. It says, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sound and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion. The second creature was like a calf. third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. Now, when we, when we read this, we, we start to think, well, what's going on here? Who... Who are these different creatures? You know, we can, we can look and we can read, and scholars look at this, and they debate, what, what are these elders and what are these creatures? And, you know, we can, we can take guesses about that, and we can, we can have the best minds looking at it and, and figuring out what, what those things might be in reference to. The, the 24 elders, it, it seems that, that they might be, you know, they're angelic beings. They may have some kind of authority over other angels. We don't exactly know. The seven spirits that are mentioned here, they're they're probably in reference to uh, just a poetic way of describing the Holy Spirit in his fullness, you know, the completeness of the Holy Spirit. Uh, The four living creatures, these are are some kind of angelic beings, maybe the same exact ones that are mentioned in in Old Testament passages like Isaiah chapter 6. But but the reality is that we, we don't fully know. The Bible tells us that there, there are angelic beings and all kinds of different angelic beings. They're, they're angels, they're cherubim, they're seraphim, they're elders, they're these creatures that have these different kind of appearance. They're all these different kinds. The Lord in his wisdom just hasn't seen fit to reveal to us exactly all the information about these. But that's okay because that's not the point of the text here. The point isn't for us to see and figure out exactly everything about these different angelic beings. The point is for us to see what these angelic beings do. And I want you to see what all these heavenly hosts do as they are surrounding the throne of God. Listen to this. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. 
And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever. And they'll cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and because of your will they existed and they were created. And so for all of time they, they cry out praise to God. Day and night, they do not cease to say. They never stop. They're always saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. And so when John writes this and when he saw this and when the, the readers of this got to this passage, they would immediately start thinking back to some of the throne room visions that they, they were written about in the Old Testament. They would have thought of what Todd read uh, in Daniel. They would have thought of that picture that Isaiah had in Isaiah chapter 6. Flip back with me for just a second. If you've got your Bible, flip back to Isaiah chapter 6. This is a passage that you're familiar with, but I think it's important for us to look at as we come to this. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is in the Spirit, and he has this vision of the throne room of heaven. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, it says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of his robe filling the temple. And notice what he sees next. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And they called out to one another and they said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Do you see? Do you see how that is just what John sees as well in his vision? These angels, these angelic beings crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Now, this is written like six, 700 years before John wrote this letter. And so the readers of this would get this, and they would see that, you know, 600 years, 700 years before, that the, the angels were crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And now, six, 700 years later, they're still crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so they'll get this picture of the angelic beings standing around the throne for all of time crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, unceasingly crying out the praises of God. So they would get this picture of unending, unceasing praise. So flip back with me to Revelation chapter 4. Flip back to that throne room scene. I want you to look at the living creatures. These are the, you know, the, the four living creatures, one like a lion, one like a calf, one like a, had a face like a man, one has, uh, is like a, a flying eagle. Listen, listen again what they do. Start at verse 9. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, this is what the 24 elders do. The 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. And so we get this picture of those elders falling down, casting their crowns, laying everything that they are all that they have at the feet of the one who sits on the throne and crying out, praise be to him forever and ever and ever. This is the vision that John has of the throne room of God, everything crying out, praise be to God. And, and so when we read this, 
when we come to this passage, I think there are a few things that we can, that we can take away from it. A few things that we can look at and say, this is what I need to pull from here. And the first thing I think is that, that God reigns over everything. Our God reigns over everything that happens in this world, no matter what may come. God reigns no matter what may come, what may happen in your life. Now, I want you to remember who was receiving this letter. These, these are Christians who are undergoing persecution during this time. There was a Roman emperor by the name of Domitian during this time. And Domitian was one of those evil emperors who saw it as part of his duty to eradicate uh, Christians. And so we, we read things uh, like Fox's uh, book of Christian martyrs that, that if there was famine, if there were pestilence, if there were earthquakes, uh, if any, any of those things afflicted any of the Roman provinces, the people during that time would blame the Christians. Christians were responsible for this. The Roman emperor would would have this uh, the statement that people would have to say that he is God. And, and of course, Christians cannot say that. So Christians are being persecuted because they are not saying that the Roman emperor is the one true God. And so they are losing their property. Some of them are being thrown in jail. Some of them, like John, have been exiled onto an island. Some of them are possibly losing their lives. And so when they read this letter they're going to see the God who still reigns on his throne. As they're facing all these things, as they're facing the possibility of death, they see that God still is in control, holding history in his hand, all of everything crying out and bowing down before him that he is God. And so when we suffer, when we go through persecution, when there come times in our lives where things seem to just be absolutely falling apart and we can't see across to the other side, Revelation 4 cries out to us that in the midst of that, God reigns on his throne. God is still absolutely, 100%, totally in control over all things. And so when we face suffering, when we face heartache, when we are experiencing things that we cannot describe because our heart breaks so much, then we can be just like those four living creatures who lay their crowns before him, the elders who lay their crowns down. They cry out, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come because we remember he reigns in the midst of what we're going through. And the second thing I think that we can take away from this chapter is that all of our life is for the glory of the one who sits on the throne. What, what do these angelic beings do? They give praise to the Lord. Living creatures, they give praise to him. The angelic beings, they give praise to him. The elders, they throw their crowns down at his feet. So what, what are we to do when we look at this? I think we're to do just what those angelic beings do. We're to give him unceasing praise because that is what he alone deserves. I was listening to one pastor as he preached through this passage, and he said that when we come to this, this throne room vision of the God who is on his throne, then we should view all of our life through the lens of the God who reigns on his throne. And so when we look at our family, we shouldn't see our family as divorced from God, but we look at our family 
through the lens of the God who reigns on his throne. When we consider school students, you don't look at your, your school as, as something that is divorced from God, but you look at school through the lens of the one who created you, through the lens of the one who reigns upon his throne because you're put in your school, you're where you are, so that you'll glorify God that he will receive praise as you are in class. And everything in our lives, we're to look at through the lens of the one who reigns upon his throne. Your job isn't a means for a paycheck. It is a means for the God who is sitting on his throne to receive glory and honor and praise. Our homes, our kids, our, our family, everything in our lives, when we view it through the lens of the God who reigns upon his throne, we see that everything that we are, all that we have, everything that we are, we have to lay at his feet and say, along with all the elders, along with all the angelic beings, here I am, all that I am is yours. Praise be to you alone. So this is how, this is how John opens up this great throne room scene of seeing God upon his throne. So if the, if the first half of this throne room scene is about the Lord God and his throne, we see the next half is about the lion and the lamb and his glory. Let's, let's pick up in, in chapter 5, listen to this. John writes, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Remember, he's still in this vision of the throne room. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break open its seals? No one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And so John is standing there in the throne room, and he sees the Lord God on his throne. And then he, he looks again, and he sees this, this scroll that is being held with seven seals on it, and no one is able to open that scroll, open the seals of it. And so John begins to weep as he looks at that scroll and say that no one can open it. And, and we look at John, and we wonder, why, why are you crying? Because this scroll isn't being opened. It's because of what that scroll is. That scroll is the representation of the culmination of all of history. Of God bringing everything to a close. Of God sending the Son back. And all of, uh, of creation then being culminated together in the return of Christ. And God bringing restoration and ending all suffering and ending all pain. And heaven coming and all these things that come at the end. And John is there who has walked with Jesus. And John who has ministered for years and he has seen the church grow and he has suffered and he's suffering now and he's seen the church currently suffering. And he looks and he sees the possibility that history isn't going to be brought to a close and that the lamb is not coming back. And he looks at that and not just he just cries, but it says he weeps greatly. We've got a picture of John sobbing because no one can open the scroll. And the, the very next thing, John looks up again. And this is what one of the elders said, starting in verse 5. Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Stop 
weeping. Look, there is the lion. And there one comes standing as a lion in all his majesty and all his glory and all his power, the one who is at the center of all of history and the one who is able to bring history to a close. And there John sees the lion of the tribe of Judah. But the very next thing, he looks back, and that lion isn't standing there, but instead he sees a lamb. And in verse 6, he says, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. No longer is a lion, majestic and mighty, standing there. But instead, we see a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Now, the obvious picture here is of Christ, of the one who bore the punishment for sin, who bore the wrath of God upon the cross. And, and when we get this picture of a lamb, we, we tend to get this picture of this weak, beaten, dead lamb. But John says this is a lamb that comes to him, looking as if he's slain, that has seven horns and seven eyes. In the Old Testament, the, the picture of a horn is a picture of strength, of authority, of power. And so we get this picture of the lamb who has all this strength and all this power and these eyes that see everything and knows everything. And so we're not dealing with this weak, powerless lamb, but we are dealing with the, the line of the tribe of the Jews, the lamb who is slain, who still has all power, who has all authority, and because he is the lamb, because he is the one who laid down his life, because he is the one who suffered, he is able to open the seven scrolls. And so if we see that chapter four, chapter four is primarily concerned with showing us the glory of the Lord God on his throne, chapter five we now see is primarily about the mission of the Lamb. Listen to what John writes about what happens next. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased uh, for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. And we get this picture of them still crying out, Amen, Amen, Amen. This is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb who was slain. And I want you to see why he is worthy of such worship. I want you to see why they continually fall down before him, crying out. Step back to, uh, to verse 8 and 9 there. We've got these 24 elders, 
holding a harp, holding these bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. I want you to get that picture. These are, these are the prayers of believers that have been prayed throughout history. And in the very next image that we get, it is them singing a song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals because for, because you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So in these bowls, we've got prayers of the saints. And part of those prayers of the saints are for people across the globe to know the truth of who God is, that they will come. Those who are lost will come to know uh, the truth of the lamb. And so the lamb now is worthy to open the seals because of what he has done in redeeming the lost. And so then the heavenly host begins to break out in, in this exalted worship of the lamb. And so it says, many angels were around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands. This is, this is a way of saying 10,000 times 10,000 were there gathered around the throne, uh, millions upon millions, a picture of an innumerable crowd of angels gathered around the throne, giving praise to the lamb because he was, verse 12, slain and because of what he had done in that, he is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This is the mission of the Lamb, that people from every tribe, people from every tongue, people from every nation would be redeemed to the praise of his glory for all of eternity. And the mission of the Lamb is that he will do this, that this will happen, so that all of heaven will burn white hot with praise for him. And then as heaven burns white hot with praise for the Lamb who has redeemed people for himself, every created thing in verse 13 bursts out in praise for the Lord. And it says, Every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, everything in creation will be crying out and saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. All of creation will burn with praise for the Lord because of what the Lamb has done in redeeming a people for himself. This, this is the mission of the Lamb. That as every tribe and tongue and people and nation are redeemed, people from those, that praise goes out to him for his glory for all of eternity. So now I, I think there is an obvious implication for us today. That the lamb upon the throne receives honor and glory when people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people are redeemed. So if that is the case, then part of our purpose, our purpose in life is for him to receive honor and glory and praise through people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people being redeemed. Which means that part of the purpose of the church, one of the main purposes of the church, is for the Lamb to be glorified through the redemption of people all across the world. And here, here's where it comes to a head. The task is not finished. There still remain people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation who do not know the Lord. In the United States, there are only 20% of people here in the States, over 300 million people, who identify themselves as evangelical believers. Throughout the world today, there are approximately 16,000 people groups. Some estimate it's 12,000, some 16,000. 
But what it boils down to is that among those 16,000 people groups, 7,000 of them are considered unreached. And what that means is that within those 7,000 people groups, there are less than 2% of people in those people groups who are believers, evangelical believers. And so in that 7,000 people groups, there are people who will live and who will die never having heard the name of Jesus Christ. And among the 7 billion people or so that are on the earth today, approximately 3 billion people have little to zero access to the gospel, which means that there are potentially 3 billion people who will live and who will die without ever hearing the name of Jesus. Approximately half of those 7,000 people groups who have no churches, uh, of those 7,000 people groups have no churches and no church planting activities at all. 3,500 or so people groups have zero Christian witness. If the mission of the Lamb is to receive glory through the redemption of people from every tribe and tongue and nation of people, then the mission of the church is to give glory to the Lamb by his people taking his message to the people of every tribe and tongue and nation and people in this world. And, and as we consider this, I think that we need to understand that the, the message here in Revelation isn't a message of guilt for the church to be guilted into going out. But this is a message of glory in which we see the glory of the lamb on his throne. We see the glory of God reigning on his throne. And as God's people go out and people are redeemed from every tribe and tongue and nation and people, then heaven burns white hot with glory to the one who sits on the throne. So this isn't a matter of the church being guilted and going out and doing it. This is a matter of the church being concerned with the glory of God and desiring for his glory to be made known all across this world. And so this is the mission of the church. And we go in confidence that we know that he has already bought people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. It says here, right, that in the end there are going to be people from every tribe and every tongue, every nation and people, right? It's going to be there, right? Then we can go in confidence knowing that he has bought them. Then when we go to these unreached people groups, then we know that there is someone there who is going to be trusting in Christ. Maybe not in our lifetime, maybe we plant the seeds, but we're knowing that there are going to be people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people who will come out and will trust in him. So we go in boldness, and we can go in, in excitement and joy because we know what he is going to do because it's already been promised. We already see the end right here in the book of Revelation. Now, I want you to remember who this, who this is written to. This is, this is written to believers who are undergoing persecution. These are believers who are, who are suffering in the midst of this. But then they get this message, they get this picture in which John is saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. In other words, it's worth it that you are going through this suffering right now. It's worth it that you are facing persecution. It's worth it that you may be facing death for taking the gospel out and for not bowing down to Caesar. Trust me, it is worth it. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. And I want you to hear that this morning, that it is worth it for us to risk everything and give all that we have for the sake of the glory of the Lamb here and around the world. Right now, there are thousands of people around us in this community who are on their way to hell. 
Across this country, there are countless millions who have never heard the gospel or have only heard a very perverted form of the gospel and are on their way to hell. And around the world, there are literally billions of people who have never heard the gospel and will not have access to it. It is worth us, worth it for us to pour out ourselves in prayer to God for them. Remember those bowls of incense, the prayers of the saints. It is worth it for us to give ourselves in prayer for the nations that they might come to know the Lord. And I tell you, it is worth it for us to give ourselves for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the Lamb. I have a friend of mine from college who she and her husband and their two kids are in the process of getting ready to move to a country that they can't tell me the name of the country because the danger is so great for them. And they can't even, they can't even move there as missionaries in name. They, they're going there, taking on a secular job uh, in order to, to raise money for themselves so that they can be in this unnamed country so that they can take the gospel to this people. Why would they go and do this? And why would they risk so much? Because it is worth it to risk everything and to give everything for the sake of the gospel and for the glory of the Lamb as people are redeemed from every tribe and tongue and people and nation around this world. I heard a song recently uh, that I I shared on Facebook with a few people, and it's it's a song that's based on a couple of missionaries from the 1700s. A man by the name of John Leonard Dobear and David Nitschmann. Uh, These were men in Germany in the 1700s. They were young. They were in their their 20s. Uh, They were young men sitting in church one day uh, one Sunday, and they heard their pastor tell about an island in the West Indies. And on this island, there was an atheist plantation owner who had 3,000 slaves. As, it, as he was an atheist plantation owner owning these 3,000 slaves, these slaves on the island would live and die under this atheist salvation, plant, uh, atheist plantation owner without ever hearing the news of Christ. And so the, these two men, John Leonard Dobear and David Nishman, heard this and, and were deeply concerned and grieved. And so what they did is they, they began looking into this plantation uh, there in the West Indies. And so what they decided to do is a way to take the gospel to these, uh, these men, these women, these boys and girls who were serving as slaves. They decided they would sell themselves into slavery so they could live there on that island so those slaves might know Christ. And it turned out when they, when they eventually went to the island, they found out that they wouldn't, they wouldn't allow a white person to become a, a slave. And so they, they became tradesmen on the island so they could know these slaves and take the gospel to them. The story goes they were on the ship getting ready to, to leave, sail away from Europe down to the West Indies. <clears throat> they shouted out to their family who was on the shore. They said, may the lamb that was slain receive the war- reward of his suffering." They looked at the lamb upon his throne and considered all things in their lives worthy of laying down at the feet of the one who is on the throne for the sake of his glory and for the sake of the gospel. And I know, I know that there are some in here right now who are wrestling with a call to missions, a call to taking the gospel across the world or wherever it might be. And, and some may even be wrestling with a call to, to difficult missions that may, be, that may be life-threatening or may be dangerous or will, will just cost you a lot. Perhaps there, there's some I don't know about who, who are just struggling with this and God is stirring in you a concern for the nations. 
And we need to look at Revelation 5 here and the Lamb upon His throne, and we say with all the angelic hosts, yes, it is worth it. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive all glory and all praise and all honor, so we'll risk it all for the sake of His glory. So no, no matter where it is that God places us, if that, if that is here for the rest of our lives, if it is in New York City for the rest of our lives, if it is Peru, if it is in some unnamed country in Central Asia, then let's give everything we are and lay everything that we are at his feet and say all of our lives is for you. And let's look at all of our lives through the lens of the lamb who sits on the throne and we see the Lord God upon his throne and see everything in our lives for that. And we say, it's not my life, but it's yours. Whatever you want from my life, I'll lay it down. It's all for you. You bought me. You redeemed me. It's yours. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. He is worthy for us to lay it all down and say, it's all for you, it's all for your glory. Worthy is the lamb. Let's pray. Lord God, we confess with the angelic host. We confess the same way all of creation will one day cry out, you are the Lord God. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And God, I pray that that will be the cry of our hearts. I pray that that will be the cry of our lives. That no matter where it is that you place us, no matter where it is that you call us, that we lay everything down at your feet and we say, it is all for you, not for us, but worthy is the Lamb. And so, God, I pray that you will stir in our hearts and that you will work in us to see our lives as not our own, but as yours, purchased by you for your purpose, for your glory. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen.